I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. Today, a local news story you may not have heard much about. Earlier this year, my colleague John Ossup reported on how a new tariff on newsprint could cost jobs at publishers in the United States. Now, newspapers like the Tampa Bay Times are saying they're being forced to lay off staff because of the rising costs of newsprint. So my colleague Meg Dalton brought on John to discuss this and more. Then we'll switch gears to discuss a new report on press freedoms around the globe and use this weekend's upcoming White House Correspondents' Dinner to dive into the relationship between the Washington Press Corps and the administration. But first, here's John and Meg's conversation about tariffs. So let's start from the very beginning. What exactly is this tariff and how did it come to be? So actually, it's two tariffs of different descriptions. But I'll come back around to that. So obviously, the broadest kind of context for this is the Trump administration's newfound kind of protectionist vision of, of U.S. trade policy, right? We saw this throughout the campaign with the America First rhetoric that he was uh, that he was so known for. And we started to see it, I think, in a number of different areas of trade, obviously, with NAFTA and with um, sort of trying to renegotiate other global trade deals. And then between the U.S. and Canada in particular, there's been a decent amount of wrangling over all sorts of different products. And the latest, or I guess one of the latest products to fall into that category is newsprint. So that's the kind of thin, low-quality paper that newspapers are literally made out of. And so basically what happened is that two like related complaints were levied by this one mill in Washington state. Uh, it's NORPAC is, is what it's known as for short. And they basically said that Canadian newsprint makers have this unfair advantage over U.S. competitors. That was their complaint. And they complained based on two different grounds, and that's why there are two different tariffs. So... When I reported on this back in in January initially, uh, only one of those tariffs had actually been introduced. uh, And that was based on Norpac's assertion, sorry, that the Canadian government was subsidizing Canadian newsprint unfairly, therefore giving an unfair advantage in the the international market. That led to tariffs that were like, I think on average around 6%. It kind of varied from mill to mill. This is a little bit complicated, but but it started to like put newsprint prices up um, for all of those US Uh, U.S. publishers that rely on the Canadian market. Then in March, what we saw was a second tariff came in, and that's an anti-dumping tariff. Now, you'll have probably heard the word anti-dumping around uh, like Chinese steel and other Mm -hmm. products like that. Basically, what it means is that a company is, if they're found to be doing it, keeping the price of a product artificially low so that it has, again, an unfair advantage in international trade. Um, And so what happened is U.S. trade representatives who were kind of responding to that complaint from that one mill in Washington state uh, investigated three Canadian newsprint manufacturers, uh, three of the, the biggest four, I believe. And they found that one of them was dumping, according to their definition of, of the term, or at least was kind of suspected of dumping. And they whacked a tariff on that mill's paper of 22%. Now, the other two uh, makers were found to not be doing it, so there are no extra tariffs on their paper. And those two between them make up about like 50% of the market. However, what then happened was that that 22% on that one mill was applied to all of the other mills that weren't investigated. So basically, prices have gone way, way up across all of those kind of half of Canadian paper output makers because of this this finding. And obviously, that makes the market very tight. And so even the places that weren't found to be dumping or to be suspected of dumping have put their prices up too. 
So basically, all the way across the board, this Canadian paper, which is used to make the newspapers that you and I read in the morning, pretty much all over America, but but particularly here in the Northeast, it's just become way, way more expensive to, to buy it. So this is a tale of two tariffs then. Right, right. And so why should we be paying attention to this? Well, because obviously this is a very difficult time for printing newspapers in general. Obviously, we know that like there's been a decline in printed products across America. There have been newspapers that have cut their circulation from weekly to from daily to, to weekly. Newspapers, of course, that have gone out of business altogether. This is a really, really difficult economic climate for print. And what this has done is in some cases applied as much as like over 30% of extra costs to literally buying the paper that you make those newspapers with. And newspapers really, really can't afford that. And so it's a tariff on Canadian newsprint specifically. And I'm wondering why can't publishers just pivot to, you know, suppliers here in the United States? Because they don't exist, basically. Um, I mean, oh, well. <laughs> clearly, I mean that's not completely true. And, and Norpac's argument is that, like, they are a U.S.-based maker of newsprint. They are being unfairly injured by, um, by Canadian competitors. So there are some mills here. But just across the board speaking, that capacity does not exist domestically. So there's just, you know, not enough to meet the demand here. Right. I mean, there used to be more paper mills in the US. And there also used to be more paper mills in Canada, too. But a bunch of them have like closed since 2009. And also, like, it's very expensive to make newsprint in small batches. So you really, it's kind of a scale production job. Um, and so a lot of US uh, paper manufacturers that made it have shifted to making like more lucrative strains of paper for glossier kind of books or toilet paper, that kind of thing. Really, what you have now is a situation where like so many publishers and newspapers across the US are dependent on Canadian paper. There's really nowhere for them to go in the domestic market, which critics say makes a mockery of the whole rationale for this kind of trade policy, because it's supposed to be about bringing back US jobs, supposed to be about boosting US manufacturing. Well, that capacity has really already fled the U.S. Uh, newsprint market. So it's not it's really just kind of lumbering, no pun intended, uh, newspaper publishers with having to pay the extra Canadian duty rather than actually being able to pivot to U.S. suppliers. So right now, the tariffs are technically preliminary. You know, the Department of Commerce and International Trade Commission will decide whether or not to make them permanent this summer. But already the tariffs are having an impact on newsrooms. I know, I know last week the Tampa Bay Times um, attributed their recent staff cuts to the tariff. And I'm wondering, is this an isolated incident or are there other newsrooms facing a similar situation? Well, I, I do think as a quick aside, it's always worth asking questions about the real reason for layoffs at a newspaper. That, that's what the Tampa Bay Times says. We have no reason not to believe that. But in any right. case like this, you, I think you do have to ask the question, well, it's a broader sort of difficult economic climate. Maybe that was the thing that pushed them over the edge. Clearly, it's not tariffs in isolation that caused those job, those, those job cuts there. So on Wednesday morning, I was able to speak with Paul Boyle, who's a, an executive at the News Media Alliance. That's a group that represents tons of particularly local newspapers in the US. And he says what happened at the Tampa Bay Times is consistent with what they're seeing across the board. That was a particularly dramatic example of, of layoffs. But already there are newspapers that are scaling back their print runs, that are trying to reduce the number of pages in an issue, trying to make efficiency savings here and there. I mean, that's going to bleed through probably into more job losses at other papers. And back in January, when these tariffs were just kind of starting to be implemented, publishers I spoke to in various different places said they couldn't rule out job losses even back then. So I think really what happened at the Tampa Bay Times is a worrying sign that those dire predictions, at least in some places, are starting to come true. And who do you think will be hit the hardest? 
Well, smaller newspapers clearly will be hit hardest by this. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, for example, also do rely on Canadian newsprint. I think there's a statistic that over 90% of papers in the Northeast use Canadian newsprint. I could have got that slightly wrong, but it's, it's a lot. So it's not going to have no impact for those bigger newspapers. But clearly, they have more of an ability to absorb this kind of... Um, this kind of immediate financial pressure for smaller newspapers who are really kind of living hands to mouth in some senses, that ability might just not be not be there. So you mentioned the News Media Alliance, which is an organization actually working to overturn the tariffs. And I'm wondering if you can kind of brief us on what they've been doing and how likely it is their efforts will be successful. So there's this group called Stop with two Ps. Uh, the website is stopnewsprinttariffs.org, um, who have come together in, their, in, in the first instance, kind of running a lobbying campaign against these tariffs. So that's the News Media Alliance are heavily involved. There are regional press associations. They have a, they have a bunch of, of members who are interested in this. So, I mean, they're doing obviously a few things. I actually have this Google alert set up for the word newspaper. And almost every single day, I will get like an editorial or two or three from these newspapers all across the country, big and small, saying these tariffs are a threat, we need to get rid of them. So clearly, they're leading a campaign actually in the, you know, in, in, in the local press in America. You mentioned earlier that there's going to be this International Trade Commission hearing on this through the summer. And basically, they will decide whether or not these tariffs that are preliminary have merit and should be made permanent. And my understanding is they will take um, submissions from some of these interested parties like the News Media Alliance who will say, here's the impact, here's why you shouldn't do the tariffs. So there's actually a fair amount of input like into the process that they can have directly. They're also lobbying legislators, um, people like Chuck Schumer, the Senate uh, minority leader who is a senator for, for New York State, uh, where this tariff is going to kind of hit particularly hard. They're interested in this. They've come out against it. So there is that kind of effort to, to work the, the levers of power. In terms of the likelihood of success, as you said, yeah, they're preliminary tariffs for the time being. Really, it's a complete unknown whether they'll be overturned or not. Um, people I've spoken to who criticize them, in my opinion, make a good case that they could be overturned. But at the same time, we really don't know what the direction of US trade policy is right now. There's a lot that's up in the air. Um, and so I certainly don't think we should count on them being overturned. But I think the more important thing here is it's like if you're renting an apartment and your landlord turns around and says, um, actually, I'm putting your rent up for the next seven months. I'm doubling your rent for the next seven months. And in seven months time, the rent board will rule on whether I was allowed to do that or not. And if they rule against me, they can basically turn around and say, you have to give that money back. That's all well and good. But if you're on minimum wage, if you're unemployed, if you don't have the money to pay that rent increase, then you're kind of screwed in the short term, right? You I mean, you have to decide whether you're going to move out or not. So that's basically the kind of situation that smaller newspapers are facing. It doesn't really matter what happens in six months' time. I mean, it, it matters, of course, what happens in six months' time. But what's much more important is what happens right now. And right now, they're being stuck with an increase that they're finding it very hard to, to afford. So that's the organized effort against these tariffs. But what can we do as individuals, whether you know as a journalist or as a news consumer, to push back against the tariffs? Well, by, by newspapers, right? I think in the first instance... Um, this is going to be a, a revenue challenge for newspapers. And if you pick up a subscription to your local paper, if you go into the store and buy one, that's in some small way giving them more money that they can use to keep to keep churning out uh, their, their product. Otherwise, you know, write to, write to your congressman, ring them up and say, hey, this is happening. I'm worried about the future of my local newspaper. Can you put pressure on the international trade authorities to say to say, no, these tariffs shouldn't shouldn't exist? Well, thank you, John Alsop, our resident paper correspondent here at CJR. Right, it's my new job title. <laughs> thank you. 
Turning now to the news of the week, we've kept John on board here, and we're also joined by our colleague, Karen Cahoe. Karen, good to have you down. Thanks so much. So on Wednesday, Reporters Without Borders released the 2018 World Press Freedom Index, and in it, the U.S. slipped two spots to 45th in the world. But I want to highlight a broader and I think more worrisome line from the report, which reads, quote, hostility towards the media from political leaders is no longer limited to authoritarian countries such as Turkey and Egypt. It goes on, more and more democratically elected leaders no longer see the media as part of democracy's essential underpinning, but as an adversary to which they openly display their aversion. And I think that description is apt for what we've seen in the U.S. in the last year and a half or so. Um, But it's really troubling that that's something that is global. Um, I know we've talked about Trump's influence there. But, John, you've been covering this in a number of countries around the globe. Does this report reflect the reporting you've been doing over the last several months? Yeah, I would say so. I also don't necessarily think there's been a huge kind of difference between 2017 and 2018. These were trends that we really saw in play last year, too. And I I think that's reflected by, if you look at the index, the fact that there isn't, you know, an enormous amount of movement. But look, you know, it does reflect uh, some really terrible things that happened last year. So Malta fell 18 places. Uh, This is the country where last October, the investigative journalist and blogger Daphne Caruana Galicia was murdered by a car bomb. Uh, And we just saw this kind of big international journalism collaboration to track the circumstances of her murder and some of the work that she was doing, Uh, which actually does point to a press freedom climate in Malta that is a lot bleaker than just her murder in isolation. There's clearly a lot of corruption there um, and a lot of efforts to intimidate journalists who try and out it. And so you saw that falling by 18 places. Um, Also, Hungary is down a few places. Some really worrying recent developments have happened there, too. Viktor Orban, their prime minister, won a resounding election victory a couple of weeks back. He spent years trying to erode the kind of independent ownership and basis of media there. And even just since he won, a couple of sort of lighthouse opposition media sources have already uh, shut down for a couple of reasons linked to his his winning again. So, yeah, I think it does reflect that last year was pretty bad and, and this year, you know, might be even worse. Yeah. And as we talk about some of these foreign countries where there have been incidents, that's one thing. And that is the sort of thing that happens, you know, in Mexico over the last couple of years, there's been uh, an increased danger because of drug cartels there. In Venezuela, the collapse of government has caused problems for journalists. But this idea of there being a, a darkening picture for the entire globe is in some ways in this report linked to the U.S.'s posturing, uh, the U.S. government's posturing rather, on these issues. I mean, we've already seen it in news reports in several countries that this term of fake news, you know, the more that Donald Trump continues to use it in press conferences and and appearances with major world leaders, the more that administrations in other countries are starting to use it and even sort of adopt it as an attitude towards their own members of the press. And it's really starting to be worrying in terms of uh, wider attitudes regarding information dissemination combined with what we've seen in sort of this global issue of misinformation that's easily spread online through Google and YouTube and Facebook. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that this comes out and coincidental, but Emmanuel Macron is visiting the U.S. this week. He has said some things about the press in France that are troubling in their own right. Yeah, Macron, I think, last year said that his thought was too complex for the press. (laughs) 
uh, as a justification. Spoiler alert, it's not. But uh, he's, he said that as a justification for cancelling a kind of traditional interview. Um, I mean, Macron is, is nothing like Trump level of bad. He can be arrogant. He can be high-handed with journalists. I mean, he can be pretty arrogant and high-handed just on the whole. But but the broader point you speak to is is definitely true. Italy is, is a particularly worrying example right now. Now, there's always been press threats in Italy related to reporting on the mafia. Now Italy is in a, a moment of really acute political uncertainty where the government is or is going to be made up of parties that have a pretty dire record of, of press freedom. The, the anti-establishment five-star movement, its founder, Beppe Grillo, who is kind of in some ways an Italian Trump, a few years ago suggested that there should be randomly selected public juries deciding whether a news story was real or fake. So yes, even in countries where you would expect the press freedom climate to be better than in some other countries, there are there are worrying trends. And that's the issue, right, is that when you're talking about Western Europe and the United States not upholding standards of press freedom that they have championed for any number of years, it has a ripple effect around the globe where there's just more impunity and we start seeing reports like this that talk about a darkening picture for the entire world. And as we talk about the relationship between the Trump White House and the press, we're presented this coming weekend with uh, what has become a controversial night, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We talked about this last year with Trump not attending and whether or not it should even be held because of cronyism and this weird look of journalists in tuxedos schmoozing with celebrities. I don't want to go back down that rabbit hole because they're going to have the dinner. Trump's not going to be there. I don't know if there's a ton more to say. But it does present us with an opportunity to talk about the relationship between reporters actually covering the White House and the Trump administration. Um, and Variety had a really good story on this. Ted Johnson wrote a piece talking with a number of White House reporters from varying outlets. And there were some pretty troubling quotes in here. Uh, he talked with Jim Acosta of CNN and April Ryan of American Urban Radio Networks, who, if you watch the daily press briefings, are familiar figures to you. And both of them talked about getting death threats. April Ryan said, I actively get death threats just for asking a question. I have law enforcement on speed dial. We talk about Trump and his Twitter attacks a lot. But for these reporters actually in Washington, uh, what can we say about the relationship between them and this administration? Is it different than in past ones? Or are we overstating what's going on right now? It's pretty clear by the quotes in the Variety piece that this is a turning point in terms of their coverage and in their experience of covering the White House. In terms of the pace, you know, the number of major stories that are coming out in a span of a few hours in some cases, and also the degree to which there is an antagonistic relationship and even the length of the press conferences between Sarah Sanders and the, the press gallery itself, uh, it's increasingly shorter. There are fewer questions that are allowed to be asked and answered. And even the tone, the dismissive, recognizably sometimes sarcastic tone in the responses and answers and the feeling that the press gallery is re refusing to highlight the positive news that Sarah Sanders feels uh, that this administration is producing versus uh, the real questions that they have about ongoing investigations or other news of the day. Yeah, there's definitely problems and reporters have spoken about them. At the same time, I've talked to a handful of veteran White House reporters who are quick to point out that Yes, there are issues, but at the same time, we do get a window into Trump through his Twitter feed, and he's much more open about taking questions during pool sprays than, say, Barack Obama was. So no, he hasn't held a press conference, which is bad, but he is 
in other ways communicating with the press. John, I know you kind of of our two minds about this question of is the relationship so much worse or um, are we making a bigger deal out of it because we have social media and because Trump is just such a unique bombastic figure? Yeah, I actually see a parallel between this and the previous topic of conversation, the uh, the World Press Freedom Index, in that clearly we're at some sort of tipping point, as Karen said. But at the same time, we don't want to overstate how rosy and good things were before. They weren't. Um, I think the idea of kind of this nostalgic golden-hued recollection of previous White House press secretaries telling nothing but the truth at all times and being extremely open and forthcoming with reporters and there never being antagonism and pushback is clearly wrong. So we need to see this in the context of the fact that, look, this is an administration. The person who is the press secretary, it's their job to sell that administration's policies. And I think it may also be worth saying, and maybe this is an unpopular opinion, I think that Sarah Sanders has consistently cleared the spectacularly low bar set by Sean Spicer um, this time last year. I think we do have something of a more normal relationship between her and the White House press corps than we saw when Spicer was Skyping in um, you know, people from random outlets who weren't in the room or when he was saying things about crowd sizes that were not just false, but obviously and demonstrably so. So I think we need to be careful not to kind of romanticize the, the past. Yeah. And I, I struggle with this because I think there's this battle between not wanting to be alarmist and not wanting uh, to fall into a trap of because Trump attacks outlets or individual journalists, that we have to fight back against him in some way. At the same time, I don't want to fall into some idea of almost both sidesism where, yes, this is bad, but it was also bad in the past. I mean, over the weekend, Trump called Maggie Haberman, perhaps the most high profile White House reporter in history, a third rate reporter, a crooked H flunky who I don't speak to and have nothing to do with. Now, that's a bald faced lie because Trump does speak with Maggie. He talk, he calls her up on the phone unprompted to clarify certain things. There's pictures of her with him in the White House. So on one hand, I understand what you're saying that, no, we shouldn't look back through rose-colored glasses. At the same time, this relationship is unprecedented in a lot of ways. It's also very frustrating to me, especially as someone who has never paid this much attention to the coverage of the U.S. administration, except through, through foreign media, is that if any of these things happened under the previous administration, whether it be Barack Obama or the Bush presidents or Clinton, you know, the way that they would be played out, especially in the conservative media, would be entirely different the way that uh, whether it be these comments or these tweets. And so when we're talking about bars and comparison, it always strikes me in terms of some of the hypocrisy. How would something that this administration does, how if you were to directly apply it to past presidents and press secretaries, how would that have been likely played out in the press? And it would have been entirely different. And and I think that's something to, to constantly think about because it wasn't that long ago. And what were the standards then? And why have they seemed to dramatically changed in a very short amount of time? Well, we will have a chance to think about all of that uh, as the entire White House press corps gathers without the president, but with Sarah Sanders as press secretary this Saturday night. Um, there will be comedy. There will be uncomfortable cronyism and schmoozing that uh, I think, as we talked about last year, is a bit unseemly, but it's going forward. And this larger conversation is one to keep in mind. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. John, thanks for playing the dual role of paper correspondent and roundtable participant. Literally never again. <laughs> uh, Karen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much. Please check out all the great work we've got up at CJR.org, and we'll see you next week.